two. The whole emphasis on the book of Ephesians is to help us understand what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be a Christian. Essentially, what it means to be part of the body of Christ. The first three chapters are doctrinal, the second three chapters are practical. Paul divides all of his letters in that manner. He always sets forth the doctrine and then he launches off into the practical applications and we'll be getting to those in just a little while. But we're still in the doctrinal setting and some of the things I want to share with you tonight are familiar to most of us, but they certainly bear repeating. We always need to be reminded who we are, where we've come from, what God has done for us. And as we are reminded of those things, we give him great praise and great glory. And so the book of Ephesians Paul writes it to help us understand what it means to be part of the church. And uh, in the first chapter, we saw two major divisions. The, the first half of the first chapter, uh, we saw God plan his plan for the church, his master plan for the church from before the creation of the world. In the second part of the first chapter, we saw Paul pray that the church might know God's plan, God's master plan, and might know also the power of God that the church might, in fact, live out the things that God wants it to live out, his plan, his purpose. So chapter one sets forth the stage for us. It gives us the, the overview, the master plan, and you have to know this, that the church is the key to God's working in human history. The church is, is, the, is, the, is the absolute centerpiece of God's working in human history. And so it's very significant, very important for us to understand where we fit in the church. We talked about this as, as a result of the fast, or during the fast and in preparation of the fast, saying, Lord, where do I fit in the body? I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm a believer in Jesus, but where do I fit in your church? What have you given me to do? And we want to point to some of those things tonight. Now in chapter 2, Paul is going to describe how God saves people. He's going to describe the process of how we get into the church. Chapter 1, we have the plan. Chapter 2, it's how you get in. Real simple. Chapter 1, you have the plan. Chapter 2, how you get in. And again, so many of us are very, very familiar with these things. But again, they bear repeating. Paul is going to describe to us, as we look at the first ten verses of chapter 2 tonight, the very process of salvation. There's a great deal of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. There's a great deal of confusion, and the confusion doesn't just extend to the time we live, but it was also during Paul's time. There was a lot of, a lot of heresy floating around, a lot of people not truly understanding the gospel, not really understanding what it means to be in Christ. And hence, this is why Paul writes this letter. 
And it was a circular letter. It just didn't go to Ephesus. It went to all the churches in Asia Minor. But there's a lot of confusion today about what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be a Christian. There are lots of people. I get letters all the time, and Kurt gets a few letters too, you know, uh, because when we, when we preach the gospel, we seem to be fairly exclusivistic. Jesus is the only way, and you've got to believe in Jesus in a very specific way. And there's a lot of people that get a little uptight with that. Yeah, praise God is right. <laughs> and so I want to talk with you, and, and if you're a little confused, if you are a little fuzzy around the edges or maybe at the foundation about what it means to be a Christian, what it really means to be in Christ, then we're going to study that uh, this night in this, uh, these first ten verses. Read with me these ten verses. Paul says, as for you, now he's coming out of chapter 1, he's just talked about and described the power of God, which has raised Christ from the dead and exalted him. Now it's that same power that's going to work in you and I. It's that very same power that's, that raises us from the dead and exalts us. Amen. That very same power. So here, what he, listen to what he says. Now he's talking to us, he's talking to believers, he's talking to people who are professing Christians. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is that? The devil, that's right, Satan. All of us, without exception, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of what? Wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Who made us alive? God did. By his great power, because he loved us and because of his great mercy. And then Paul adds this parenthetical statement. He says, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God, not only did he save us, not only did he make us alive with Christ, but he raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now let's look at verse 1. If you're a Christian, Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. If you're a Christian, he's describing your past. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. If you're not a Christian, he's describing your present. That's who you are. You are a dead person. Now, if there's somebody here tonight that's not a Christian, don't be offended. 
Sit and listen. This is important. God has you here. He wants you to hear this. You're dead. What does it mean to be dead? You're dead spiritually. You're alienated, cut off from God. That's what that means. If you're a Christian, that's your past. If you're not a Christian, that's your present. That's where you are today. Dead in your transgressions, dead in your sins. Man has a problem. Are you aware of that? Man has a real problem. Someone say, well, why, what, what is man's problem? Why does man seem to have some kind of a, of a condition? Some would say man has a problem because he's, he's, his biorhythms are out of sync with the biorhythms of the universe. He doesn't have his crystals lined up right. Some would say that. Some really believe that. They're working real hard to get their biorhythms all together, you know, and just kind of groove with the all-nothingness. And because they don't have their biorhythms all right, then there's, obviously that's why we have problems. That's why there's conflict. That's why there's wars. That's why there's evil. That's why all this stuff is going on. Some others would have us believe that man has a problem because he just simply hasn't evolved enough to a high, high enough state. He just, he's, he's, he's just not quite there yet. Well, how long is it going to take? You see? But you know what man's problem is? Man's problem isn't that. It's not that he's out of, out of harmony, his biorhythms, or he hasn't evolved high enough. Man's problem is that he is dead. That's his problem. He's dead. And he doesn't know he's dead. Does a dead body know it's dead? No. And just like a physically dead body doesn't know it's dead, a spiritually dead person to God doesn't know he's spiritually dead. He doesn't know it. Feels his body, says, well, I'm still here. I believe in God. Oh. You see, that's why there's a lot of confusion today. There's a lot of people who, who believe in a God... They believe in something out there, but it's not the God of the Bible. And they don't understand what it really means to be a person who is alive to God. And so the big problem is that mankind is dead. Have you ever tried to rouse a dead body? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't respond to very many stimuli, does it? I mean, you poke it, you probe it, you pinch it, you, it doesn't respond. And a spiritually dead person does not respond to stimuli. You can see it. I see it when I, when I share the gospel with people who are spiritually dead to God. This blank stare just comes over their face. What, what, are, what are you talking about? You, you try to engage them in, in conversation about spiritual things and, and they're off on this tangent and that tangent. They're dead. But you engage someone who's alive to God with spiritual stimuli and boy, you get a response. Don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus 
speaks about this. You remember when the, he's calling people to come follow him? And one guy says, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. I'll go wherever. But let me go bury my father first. His father wasn't dead. You know that. His father wasn't even sick yet. It was a delaying tactic because he wanted to get the inheritance that he was going to hang around. And Jesus said to him, what did he say? Do you remember? Let the what? Let the dead bury their dead. What's he talking about? He's saying, let the spiritually dead take care of the dead. I've got more important things for you to do. I mean, he's, he's challenging him to the urgency of the task of the moment. True? And a spiritually alive person will respond to those challenges. You can't help but respond. Because it's the same Spirit of God. So man is born dead. He's born dead. He doesn't come into this life okay and then get dead. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that all have sinned. We didn't inherit Adam's sin nature. We sinned in Adam. We were born separated and dead from God. This is so important to understand. Because when a person purportedly becomes a Christian, if they don't understand the desperate situation they're in, if they don't understand they're dead, if they're alienated from God, and they come, they walk the aisle, they pick their head up, they raise their hand, they say, pray a prayer, but they pray it on any other reason, for any other reason or any other basis other than the fact that they're desperately lost, then they come under fraudulent, on a fraudulent basis. They come on a fraudulent basis. They've got to understand they're dead. That's why we preach the gospel. Part of the gospel announces to people, hey, we've got good news. You're an enemy of God. But God loves you and he wants to save you. You're dead, you're alienated. And he's made the way. And so when you come to Christ, you come to Christ only. And it's only going to make a lasting difference in your life if you understand where you are. Lost. Dead. Separated and alienated from God. No hope on your own. No hope. So man is born dead. That's why he sins. Man is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. Paul says you are dead in your transgressions and your sins. Transgressions, a loose translation. You're stumbling about. Man stumbles about and he sins or he misses the mark because he's dead, because he's spiritually dead. One writer described the lost as walking zombies. Walking zombies, just moving about, stumbling around, constantly missing the mark, not even knowing where the mark is. That's the whole emphasis of this passage. And you see, it's going to take the power of God to bring those people who are dead to life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
Man sins as a result of being dead. And sin, very simply, is a failure to hit God's target. What's God's target? What's God's target? Isn't it perfection? I mean, God's target. Doesn't he say, be perfect because I'm perfect? Now, it's not a suggestion on God's part. Do you know that? He's not saying, you know, I'd sure like you guys to be perfect. (laughs) No, it's a command. He says, be perfect. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's impossible. Not in Christ. Not in Christ. But you'll never understand your need to be in Christ until you first take that command to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Seriously. When you begin to take that command seriously, you begin to see how absolutely helpless you are and your need for God's mercy and His grace. You cry out, Help! I can't do this by myself! 1 Peter chapter 1. God speaks, says, Be holy because I am holy. I mean, it's a command. God demands that we be perfect. He demands holiness from us. It's not that we can just kind of hang out and be cool. There's a demand for perfection and a demand. That's the target. That's the target. And sin is a failure to hit God's target, the target of perfection. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's in the same boat. Over in chapter 1 of Romans in verse 21, again, we have the same picture. Sin is the failure to glorify God, to bring Him the glory that is due Him. But let me tell you something about sin. We focus and think about sin, and we always focus on sin as being the things that we do. Right? The transgressions, the, 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 the acts of sin that we commit. <clears throat> you know what he's talking about here? Beloved, for us, sin has much more, much more to do with what we don't do than with what we do do. <laughs> And we're running around doing all kinds of stuff. People run around all day trying to justify themselves doing all this stuff. And you know what? It doesn't help. Because when God says, be holy, he's focusing on the deficit. He says, close the gap. And we can't. And so sin really has more to do with what we don't do than with what we do do. And so many times when we share the gospel with people, we don't bring that perspective to bear. Now, there are a lot of good people around, aren't there? Really nice people, generous people, gracious people, kind people. They, they give you the shirt off their back. They help you out. I mean, there, there are in this world some very, very nice people, aren't there? People, they look at their life and they say, you know, I'm not a terrible person. 
I'm not a horrible sinner. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. I, I, my life is in order. I'm a good husband. I'm a good provider. I take care of my family. I, I, I pay my taxes. I'm a good, honest, hardworking, everyday person. Lots of people like that around, aren't there? And lots of people relying on that, aren't they? Their own relatively good human goodness. Jesus recognized that. But let me share with you how Jesus categorizes the good people. Over in Luke chapter 6, verse 33, let me read this to you. Actually, beginning verse 32. He's saying, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. How does he characterize good people? He calls them sinners. He says, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. So Jesus is acknowledging that there are some good people in the world. Lots of them. But they're not good enough. And he categorizes them as sinners. There's another passage in Luke chapter 11. Let me share this with you. Luke chapter 11, and it's verse uh, 13, if you want to write that reference down. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So you get, you get the picture? He's pointing to... Good fathers, fathers have wonderful intentions that you're not going to trick your son when he asks you for something. He asks you for something, you're going to give him a good gift. The implication is that you're a good father, a good person, humanly speaking. But now look what he says. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, so we talk about sin not so much in, in the things that we do, but sin has much more to do with what we don't do. We fall so far short. And Jesus categorizes the good people of this world as sinners and as even evil. There's a passage in John, John chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus is telling the disciples he's going to go away, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to what? Convict the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, he says, what sin is he going to convict the world of? All the sins that men do? No. You know what the sin he's going to convict men of? The sin of not believing on Jesus Christ. When you share the gospel with somebody... Who's, a, who's, a, who's dead, the Holy Spirit is right there doing a work of conviction on that person that they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And they'll swear to you up, up and down, back and forth, that they don't believe. But I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit is convicting that person of that sin of not believing on Christ. See, do you get a picture of what, what Paul is saying about sin? He says, you're, you're dead. 
You're dead in your transgressions and in your sin. And your sin isn't so much the things you did as much as it is the things that you don't do. You don't, you can't get to God's target. You're hopelessly dead. And that's where we were before we became Christians. But again, if you're not a Christian, that's where you are today. In spite of all the goodness that you do in your life, in spite of all the wonderful things that, you, that you've done and accomplished and, and the tremendous person you've tried to be, honest and helpful and faithful, that's not enough. Because you're not being perfect. And God demands that you be perfect. Do you see how far we fall short? But he's not done. He says in verse 2, He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I shared the gospel with this guy one day. He was talking about becoming a Christian. And I said, if I could could prove to you categorically that Christianity is true, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he's the only way to God, if I could prove that to you, would you become a Christian? You know what his response was? No. I said, why not? He said, "I I won't become a Christian because I want to do what I want to do. And I said, oh, Lord, give me wisdom. (laughs) And God did. And I see it reflected in this passage. I said to this fellow, I said, you don't do what you want to do. You can't do what you want to do. You do what the world tells you to do. You do what the Satan-dominated world demands that you do, pressures you to do. You're not doing what you want to do. If you want to do what you want to do, become a Christian. Let God change your heart, give you a new heart, a new understanding, and set you free to do then what you will want to do. And with that, he didn't have a response. And that's what Paul's saying in this passage in verse 2. He says, we used to live after the ways of the world. We used to follow the ways of the world. The Satan-dominated world. Look at what he says. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Satan is, when he talks about the kingdom of the air, he's not just talking about the atmosphere. He's talking about the air of ideas. He's talking about the the sphere of influence of this world. The ways of this world. The pattern of this world. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Why? Because it's dominated by who? Satan. Satan is committed to what? Destruction and death. 
John says in his first epistle, don't love the world because it's opposed to the kingdom of God. Now someone's going to say, well, but I've got to live here. That's right. Jesus says you be in the world, but not of it. You don't buy into the world's value systems. You don't give yourself over to them. And boy, they are subtle. They are subtle. The world pressures man. The world pressures man, pressures man, pressures man, and man succumbs. He succumbs. Because why? Because Satan is all behind it. What are the ways of the world? There are three major characteristics, three major categories that describe the way of the world, or the spirit of the age, if you will. Let me give you these three. The first one, humanism. Humanism, very simply stated, humanism is I, the big me. I can take care of it. I don't need anybody. El numero uno. <laughs> I'm self-sufficient. That's, that's essentially humanism. That man is the solution to all the problems. Man is a self-contained God. And that's subtle, isn't it? Well, we buy into that. The world pressures us into that. Have it your way. We sing that little jing. Have it your way. I did it my. Yeah, I did it my way. You see, and it's it's so subtle, and, and we and we admire that. The self-made man. Isn't that wonderful? It relieves God now of any responsibility to do anything. See, we 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 look up and we say, Wow. He didn't need anybody. Did it himself. Did it herself. That's humanism. And it's very subtle. And it's, it's pervasive in our culture. And it's being taught in our schools. They're erasing and eradicating every reference to God that you can find because they have what's called a humanist manifesto one and the humanist manifesto two, which is dogmatically set against any theme of deity. Man is sufficient. The second characteristic of, the, of this world is materialism. You've got humanism and you've got materialism. Get, 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 get. And in order to get, 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 you've got to have more, 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 more money. And the more money you get, the more stuff you get, the more you've got to maintain. Did you ever think about that? Mm-hmm. It doesn't dawn on anybody until all they've got all this stuff accumulated. Now they've got to maintain it. And now they've got to have more money to maintain all the stuff they got. <laughs> and there's all this pressure to get all this stuff because if I don't have all this stuff, somehow I'm missing out. Say, wins What? What are you going to win? Quick trip down. Yeah, quick trip down. 
So you've got humanism. You've got materialism. And beloved, it's, it's in the world. This is the way we used to go, but sadly, these things have crept into the church. They've crept into the church and they've influenced the life of the church. There's too many people in the church who are, who are caught up in their own egos and in what they want, and you talk about submission to the church and submission to the Scriptures, and as soon as you hold someone accountable, they say, I'm going someplace else. Who do you think you are to tell me? And you got people spending money they don't have on things they don't need to impress people they don't like. <laughs> you know that? We take a missionary offering. We take a missionary offering every couple of months. We maybe get $4,000. Church this size ought to put out twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for people in the foreign mission field. But our budgets are so bloated with, un, with, with unnecessary stuff. We're spending money on stuff that's just going to burn. We're not storing up treasure in heaven. We're storing up treasure here. It's crept into the church. And the third characteristic is sex. Sex. We live in a day and an age where, where sex is used to sell everything. I mean, it is absolutely disgusting. One writer said it this way, our society, our culture, doesn't have the morals of a barnyard. We don't have the morals of a barnyard. Our culture is so degraded and so vile and so disgusting. Anything goes. And again, it's crept into the church. Immorality is in the church. Couples are fornicating. They're having sex without marriage. God created sex for marriage and marriage only, not outside of marriage. If you're here tonight and you're involved in a, in a relationship where there's sexual <coughs> things going on that are inappropriate, you're not married to that person, stop. Stop. If you're in an adulterous relationship, if you're in a fornicating relationship, stop. You say, well, well, well we're going to get married. We know, and, and we love each other, and we're going to get married. No, you're only, you're only eroding the foundation spiritual foundation for your marriage. You're, gonna, you're making a horrible mistake. You're bonding inappropriately. God meant sex to be the beautiful crowning jewel of a relationship between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. God doesn't want to hold out all the goodies. He doesn't want to say, whoa, I'm going to hold out on you. No, he wants your very best. Right. And if you're involved in a relationship where sex is a big part of it, you're not communicating. You're not talking. You're not sharing. You're not learning to understand one another and share with one another. You get the, the, the quick 
conversation over and it's in the sack. Mm-hmm. Oh, but we talk. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you're doing that, I guarantee you, within a year after your marriage, you'll be in Henry Caney's office. And you'll be saying, we don't understand it. Something changed. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom. Beloved, Satan is behind it all. Satan is behind humanism. He's behind materialism. He's behind illicit sex. He's behind it. He said, well, I don't believe in Satan. Then you are most to be pitied. If you don't believe in a real personal devil, the absolute personification of evil then you are, you are absolutely set up. You are absolutely set up. He is behind it all. He breeds the influence. He's behind the trends, both secular trends as well as religious trends. I mean, he's up to his neck in religion. Do you know that? This morning at 5 a.m. around the world, 500 million Muslims got up and prayed to Satan. Five hundred million of them got up at five a.m. and prayed. To, do they know they're praying to Satan? No. no, they're dead, aren't they? They're dead. They're dead to the true God. He's got them fooled. Do you, you see why the, for, for missionaries to break into the Muslim world, to break into Islam, to trying to, try to bring some kind of conversion factor in there is so incredibly hard? You've got 500 million Muslims every morning rising at 5 a.m. to pray? You see why the strongholds are so strong there? Because Satan is behind it. He's behind all the trends. He's behind the religious trends in Christianity. Do you know that? He loves to separate churches. He loves to create division. He loves to, to unsettle people. And so he's gonna, he just raises up this trend and raises up that trend and says, Ooh, why don't you run after that? Oh, do that. Ooh, doesn't that look good? That'll tintillate you. That'll tickle your ears. But Paul says what? You need to have an ear for sound doctrine. The whole counsel of the word. And don't be running after trends. Don't be running after what tickles your ear. Because very possibly, the devil himself is behind it. And he'll utilize it because he has in the past to divide the church, to create factions in the church. We are the body of Christ, and we're to present a body united to the world. Not a divided Christ. Satan's behind it all. He says, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time. I mean, we were all there. Can you relate to this? Yes. I mean, we were all, I was there. I was there full force. I was into humanism. I was into materialism and into sex. Full on, I was up to my earlobes in it all. 
gratifying, he says, the cravings of our sinful natures and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of what? Wrath. Wrath. Beloved, every one of us were bullseye targets for God's guns of judgment. He had to judge sin. Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans that in Christ he judged sin in the flesh. Jesus took our sin. But for those who don't trust in Jesus, sin still has to be judged in the flesh. And if you're not a believer, if you're still dead in sin, then you're a bullseye target. You're a clay pigeon. You're a sitting duck. God's going to blow you out of the water. You're his enemy. That's where we were at one time. Isn't it glorious that we're not there anymore? Isn't it glorious that we're not there anymore? Oh, amen. The wrath of Almighty God? Oh, thank you, Jesus is right. But look at this, verse 4. Oh, whew, here it comes. But God. Don't you love it? Don't you love it? But God. Whoo, like a breath of fresh air, but God. What does he say? But because of his great what? His great love for us. Oh, God loves the sinner. He hates the sin but he loves the sinner. He wants to separate the sinner from the sin so he can judge sin independent of the sinner. But if the sinner won't back away, he's going to judge them both together. But God, because of his great love, do you know he loves you? We were praying yesterday morning, the staff, praying for the church, praying for all of you. And as we were praying, God gave me a, a word and it was simply this. I love you. I want you to know it brought me to tears. It, 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 it just cut me right down into my heart. I love you. Because of his great love, because he's rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He made us alive. What is the one thing that a dead person needs the most? Don't tell me a coffin. Life, doesn't he? What is the one thing that a spiritually dead person needs most? A new car? A new house? Dinner out on the town? A gift certificate to TJ Peppercorns? One of my favorite restaurants, by the way. <laughs> no! A dead person needs life! Amen? Amen? And what does God give? God gives the one thing that dead people need the most. He gives them life. He gives them life and he gives it how? Meagerly? Abundantly. 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 
abundantly. How abundantly? How, you got to see this. How abundantly does he give life? And God who raised us up with Christ. Now listen, when he, when he saved us, when he made us alive, when he brought us from the dead, he didn't leave us wandering around in the cemetery. Isn't that nice? He didn't just raise us to life and just leave us wandering in the cemetery. You say, well, that sure feels like I'm wandering in the cemetery. (laughs) But you're not. Because here's what he says. Here's what God has done. And God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are seated in the heaven. What in the world does that mean? You're sitting there thinking, well, no, I'm seated in Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach. (laughs) If you've been raised with Christ, your citizenship, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he says, set your affections on things above. Set your thoughts on things above. And you find that that's true. You really can relate to being seated in heavenly realms in Christ because all of your thoughts, all of your affections, your hopes, your desires, everything is heavenward, is it not? I mean, when you think about the future, when you think about things, you think, oh Lord, to be in glory. You talk to the Father. Where's the Father? In heaven. You get your marching orders from where? Heaven. You think about Paul and Abraham and all those wonderful biblical personages who one day you'll get to meet. I think about that. I'm seated in heavenly realms. I'm I'm there. I'm just passing through here. My earth suit is going to pass off pretty soon. And I'm going to have a heaven suit. I'm going to have a heaven suit. You remember what God told Moses? When, when, when Moses says, I want to see you, God. And, and God told Moses, he says, no man can see me and live. Well, you know what he meant? He says, you got that earth suit on, man. You'll come apart molecule by molecule. I show you my face. You ain't built for it. We got to have a suit that's built and constructed and that can stand in the very presence of the Father. Wow. <laughs> man, I tell you, that turns me on. I'm seated in heavenly realms. God just didn't leave me wandering around the graveyard. My, I'm, I'm moving. My, all my affections, all my, I want to be so heavenly minded that I might be some earthly good. True? Amen. Now look at this. Oh, this is glorious. Verse 7. This is absolutely astounding. When I saw this, I went crazy. I went crazy when I saw this. How much does God love us? Oh, listen to this, verse 7. In order, see, God has done all this. He's he's raised us, He's given us life, He's, he's, He's seated us in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, let me ask you, when do the coming ages begin? Huh? When do the coming ages begin? You know when I think they begin? The minute 
you believe. The minute you believe, the coming ages begin. And what does he say about the coming ages? In order that in the coming ages, the minute you believe, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. What does he want to do? He wants to pour out his grace on you. When? The minute you believe. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Oh, beloved, God wants us to know his kindness. He wants to show kindness. He wants to bless your life and my life. And he's waiting for the moment that you or I believe, put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the minute we do, that's the minute the coming ages begin for me. And God's kindness now is poured out upon me. Isn't that wonderful? There's too many people, too many Christians walking around thinking, oh man, oh man, it's a, I don't know, God doesn't know I'm here, and it just, you know, I just, I don't, just don't feel his grace, and you know, I, I don't really feel like God loves me, but he does. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. He's pouring out his kindness on you. You say, well, why can't I feel it? Because you've got to posture yourself to receive it. What's the posture to receive his grace and kindness? Papa! Right? That's the posture. That's the posture. How can a little child running all over the neighborhood, riding his bike, jumping off and on the skateboard, with no time to spend with Papa, know the grace and the kindness that that Papa wants to pour out? True? The coming ages begin the minute you believe. I love it. And he says this, verse 8 and 9. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through what? Through faith. And this is not from yourself. I mean, the whole process. The whole process is a gift. Even the faith. He gives you the faith even. Astounding. He says, that's not even of you. He says, it's not by works. I mean, you can't, you can't work your way. You can't be good enough on your own effort to meet God's target. He said, not of works, so that no one can boast. No one can take credit. God gets all the credit for his great work. God gets all the credit. And it's by faith. It is simply, simply by faith. Simply believing. We are all creatures of faith, are we not? We live by faith every single day. There isn't a day go by that we don't live by faith. Isn't that true? I mean, every time you pop the lid on a Coke can and you drink it, that, beloved, is an act of faith. Because you don't know really what's in that can. True? It's an act of faith. We live by faith every day. It's basic to our human nature to live by faith. 
when you turn on the tap water and you fill up your glass and you drink it. If it looks clear, you by faith chug it down. True? You go into McDonald's, you don't know what's happened behind those golden arches. <laughs> but you said, give me a cheeseburger and fries and a chocolate shake. And you eat it by what? Faith. <laughs> I got to tell you a cute story real quickly. I read about this. Maybe some of you read this story. In the Reader's Digest some time ago, some years ago, about a town. This town, I forget the name of it. <clears throat> but they, the town was on, it was a small town. They were on a... A, uh, a water tank storage system for delivering water to all the, all the inhabitants of the town. And the town was growing, so they needed to switch over. The water storage tank capacity wasn't great enough, and so they switched over to a piped-in water system, like a municipal water system. And so when they got the, trans the transition all done, they drained the big storage tank. You know what they found in the bottom of that storage tank? They found dead dogs, rats, all kinds of debris, tires. You say, how in the world did that stuff get in there? They didn't know. But it was published in the local newspaper. And every, just about every member of that town got retroactive dysentery. <laughs> They were drinking that water by faith. <laughs> oh, beloved. I mean, it's trust, isn't it? I mean, if you can trust, if you can trust in those guys that are cooking your hamburgers, if you can trust what's in a Coca-Cola can, surely you ought to be able to trust the God of the universe. Surely. Just believe. Just believe. Accept the gift. Accept the free gift. Accept the free gift. And when you do, you come alive in that instant. You come alive in that instant. God does a miraculous, powerful work in your life. He brings you from death to life. He seats you in the heavenly realms. He pours out of His grace and His kindness on you forever. Forever. And then Paul says in verse 10, he says, For we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship in the Greek came to mean masterpiece. We are God's masterpieces. You say, well, I sure don't feel like a masterpiece. But you are. You are in his eyes. And remember, he's not done with you yet. He's still working. The little kid in the children's church. Pestering, pestering the children's church teacher. Disruptive. And the teacher went up and said, who made you? God made me, but he ain't done yet. <laughs> we're God's masterpieces, and, and God has made us his masterpieces. Paul says we're created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. To do good works. And when were these good works assigned to us? 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. In another translation, it's before the creation of the world. God has his whole plan and purpose set up before the creation of the world. He creates the church. He brings it into existence. He brings dead people to life. He makes them alive. He seats them with Christ. He empowers them. And then he gives them stuff to do. And the question for us is what are we doing? What good works has God given me to do before the creation of the world? What am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my life? Am I running after humanistic endeavors? Am I spending all my hours and time and resources on materialistic pursuits? Am I immersing myself in sexual things that I ought not to be? Am I still pursuing the course of this world? The ways of this world? Or do I know who I am? Raised with Christ. God has given me things to do. You say, well, I, don't, I couldn't see myself being a pastor. Oh, beloved, God has more things to do than just to be a pastor. Well, I'm afraid to be a missionary. God has more things than just being missionaries. You say, well, I, I, I kind of have an idea of what he wants me to do, but I, 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 I don't have any power. God, I want to know your power to do the works that you've called me to do that I know that you've called me to do. And God, I'm not leaving my knees until I know your power. Father, we love you tonight. Oh, Lord. Oh, Father. Your love for us is overwhelming. We thank you that you've made us part of the church, the body of Christ. God, that we, we could know your plan more intimately, know your purpose for our lives, know your power, that we might indeed work the works that you've given us to do before the beginning of the world. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for faithful men and women. I thank you for the many who are so committed to you and to living their lives for your glory. But Lord, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied until every single one of us, Father, every single one of us are committed to the call that you placed on our life. As we prayed for the marriages tonight, I pray for the entire congregation. Lord, that we would know you better. Father, we'd know your plan and purpose better. And Father, we'd know your power to carry those things out. Move on us by your Spirit. Show us the vain things that we follow after, the empty things that we seek after, the foolish pursuits. And Lord, fill us by your Spirit. We love you tonight. Tell the Lord you love him. If you love the Lord, say, Lord, I love you. Father, I love you. 
I love you, I love you, I love you so much. Let these not be empty words. Just a moment now while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. There may be some who, who've come dead, but they want to be alive. If you find yourself in that position, then I want to pray with you. I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ, to Jesus. Very simply, he died for you. He took all of, his, all of your sins and all of your guilt on, on him and himself on the cross. He's the avenue. He's the way in to know the one true living God. He's the way to heaven. He's the way to forgiveness. He's the way to healing. If you came tonight and you, you didn't know Christ, but you want to know him now, you see, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's the perfect expression of God to man. And if you want to know God, you got to know Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, while everybody else's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'll lead you in a little prayer, but I want to know who wants to pray. And you can let me know. You can signal to me just by looking up at me or waving at me, somehow getting my attention, and then we'll pray. Is there anybody at all? Just look up now. Is that why you're looking up back there? Good. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody back there? I can't. The lights are kind of obscuring my ability to see. Back there? Good, sir. Okay. The two of you? One, three of you? Oh, praise God. Hallelujah. Three right in a row. Back there in the back row? All right. Good. All right, anybody else? Anybody else? Did I miss anybody? Now's the time. Don't hesitate. You know, if God's talking to your heart. Okay, let's pray. Make this your prayer. God, I just come before you simply right now. I've heard some things I've never heard before. And they've come out of the Bible. And I've always thought the Bible was, was your word. It's told me that I'm, I'm, I've been a dead person, dead to you. I've always thought I, I believed in you. But I see now there's much more to believing, believing on Jesus Christ. So I, right now, I commit myself. I want to be raised from dead, from being dead to, to being alive. And I want to be seated in heavenly realms. I want to be put in Christ. I want to be a member of the real live church. I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. I want to know you. And I want to know your power in my life. And I want to do the things that you prepared for me to do. And so I give my life to you now. I receive Jesus as my Savior. He saved me. And as my Lord. And I confess him now as Lord. And I say thank you, Father, for the forgiveness. Thank you for making me new. Thank you that the coming ages have begun this instant in my life. And I praise your holy name. And I thank you for bringing me here tonight that I might hear this great news. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you that prayed, welcome to the family. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory.